On the Record with Gavin Riley. Brought to you by PwC on News Talk. And there's fairly varied uh, front pages of today's papers. After, by the way, you get uh, get past the wraparound ads for a certain large um, Australian retailer of uh, computers, electrical furniture and bedding, uh, which is uh, pretty much everywhere. But once you get past their wraparound ads, uh, it is a pretty varied palette of front pages this morning. Uh, I'll start with the Irish Mail on Sunday. Fears of Russian election meddling. Uh, ministers and government officials are employing increased security measures amid deepening fears of Russian infiltration. TVs and TDs and senators who have been placed on a Kremlin travel ban list have called on the government to provide them with significantly enhanced protection and security service. But while sources played down the likelihood of physical harm, one source expressed significant concern over the state's cybersecurity preparedness and the potential for Russia to interfere in our elections. And that's the front page of the Irish Mail on Sunday. Uh, Business Post. Businesses in highly polluting sectors, such as fossil fuels and aviation, should face new levies to pay for the global uh, damage caused by the climate change. Uh, according to Eamon Ryan, he's told the Business Post that the issue of industry taking financial responsibility for climate change had been shied away from for decades, but now has widespread support at the highest levels of European governments. That was Eamon Ryan speaking to the Business Post just a few hours before that news broke overnight of confirmation of a loss and damage fund being signed off at the COP27 negotiations at Sharm El Sheikh, where Eamon Ryan had taken the lead as the negotiator on behalf of the European Union. Also on the front page of the Business Post, uh, Leo Varadkar has said that the next election will be the most important in a generation as he set out Fine Gael's priorities for the remainder of the coalition and said that Sinn Féin must be stopped uh, at the next election. Of course, he would say that, wouldn't he? We'll talk to him in about an hour's time and see what he makes of that. Um, and also, around 80% of adults are using less heating and electricity this winter due to the cost of living crisis, according to a new Red Sea poll. 73% of households expect energy bills to increase in the next six months, to which I say, what are the other 27% thinking in in truth. 77% of households believe their disposable income will reduce in the same period. 68% of those polled have been saving less money in the last six months due to rising prices. 55% feel their quality of life is lower than it was last year. And this is interesting. I'll talk to Leo Varadkar about this. Around two-thirds of those aged between 18 and 24 and more than a third of those aged between 25 and 34 say they're considering emigrating to enjoy a better quality of life elsewhere. That is in line with other recent Red Sea polling for the National Youth Council. That's the Business Post. Sunday Times has a very interesting front page splash this morning, uh, which is that Christy Kinahan, the international cartel member being sought by law enforcement around the world, is helping Iran to procure military technology in defiance of international sanctions. Kinahan has been implicated in a series of attempts over the past two years to buy second-hand aircraft and spare parts in Africa and Central America using an assortment of false identities and offshore companies. Suspicions are also growing that the 65-year-old has forged connections with Russia's intelligence services who are trying to procure technology to circumvent the sanctions imposed on them after the war on Ukraine. Um, Also on the front page of the Sunday Times, uh, quite a few stories on the front page of the Sunday Times today. Uh, Half of young people in the Republic admit they don't fully understand the history of the Troubles. One in four don't know whether they support the Good Friday Agreement. That's according to a Behaviour and Attitudes poll for the Sunday Times. Um, A teenager seriously injured in a crash after a carjacking has special needs and is non-verbal, according to Garda sources. That is the car that was stolen in Castlecoma on Friday while the girl was in the backseat of the car um, while her father was was nearby just picking something up from his workplace. Um, Four Catholic orders have paid out a total of 15 million euro in compensation to victims of child sex abuse. 
as more details emerge about the scale of historical offending in schools. And the true figure is likely to be higher, but many congregations are still to disclose their awards. Michal Martin saying yesterday an inquiry would examine allegations of abuse at schools run by the Spiritans. Uh, the father of Nicola Furlong as well also bracing themselves for the release of her killer, who's scheduled to be freed from a Tokyo jail this week after serving just 10 years for strangling her to death. Uh, and finally for now, the front page of the Sunday Independent. €476 million Euro for housing still unspent as crisis grows. Um, nearly €500 million Euro of the government's housing budget for the first nine months of this year was not spent, according to a secret memorandum given to ministers last week. The Sunday Independent can reveal that as the coalition continues to face a major housing and homelessness crisis, the cabinet was told in a memo brought by Dara O'Brien on Tuesday that hundreds of millions of euro from his department's unprecedented housing for all budget is not being spent. While the department expected expenditure on capital programmes to be at close to one and a half billion euro by the end of the third quarter, only 999 million euro was actually spent, an underspend of 476 million, uh, the majority of that on a range of state housing programmes, including a massive underspend on local authority housing. Uh, that is your potted tour of what's on the front pages of this morning's newspapers. To discuss those stories and more, join in studio by Mick Clifford, special correspondent with the Irish Examiner, and Sheena Cal, Head of Communications with Gaskin, a member of the uh, board of the Irish Women's Council. Uh, thank you both very much for, for joining me this morning. Um, I, I don't want to spend too much time going on about it because we will talk to Leo Varadkar about it in the next hour. Um, but obviously quite a bit of... Um, coverage of the um, Fine Gael Ardesh across the front pages of the newspapers I nearly said Sinn Féin Ardesh there because it seems that all of the coverage is sort of tainted with some sort of Sinn or bashing of one sort or another uh, Mick where would you like to start on all of that this morning? Yeah I have to say uh, Gavin I was awaiting the start of the rugby match last night and I tripped across uh, Mr Varadkar's speech and I think it was the RT plus one channel and what struck me the, the section I found he was going over everything that Fine Gael have done since they came to power in 2011. Mm. And you have to say, objectively, in one sense, yes, their stewardship over the last 11 years mm. on a macro level has been very good and has brought Ireland from a position where we are the IMF, etc., etc. Yeah, he gave but this answer, what, what have we done in 11 years? He said, full employment, incomes up, taxes down, better pensions, sick pay, paternity leave, parents leave, more affordable childcare, marriage equality... Uh, and plenty of other things about the influence that we have in the world, more people living in rural Ireland. So when, when you All put true. it out in a litany, All true. it sounds impressive. Big elephant in the room, housing. What they have also done, unfortunately, is, to my mind, fractured, if not broken, the social contract in terms of people's ability to have a half-decent job, to be able to buy a house, to be able to advance through life in that sense. And the, the, the pluses in the legacy also have contributed to that in that disproportionately they hugely benefit my generation an older generation rather than the young and I think irrespective of all those pluses the negatives in that sense are haunting them now and they're going to continue to haunt them and there was various points over the last particularly the last six or seven years where they could have really uh, put the shoulder to the wheel in terms of housing and it wasn't done. I'm talking specifically in relation to, for example, 2017, a declaration that we had a housing emergency. That's great. The, 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 the rudiments to be put in place for an emergency mm. were not done so. And I think that is what haunts them and that is what the next election is going to be about. It doesn't necessarily mean Sinn Féin will come in and, and have a house for everyone, as some people seem to be promising. But people's attitudes will be, well, this crowd have been there long enough and they haven't done anything about it. What's the alternative? And I think it's going to be housing, housing, housing at the next election. Mm. Um, Shana, your, your thoughts on that idea from Mick that uh, everything that Fine Gael has done in power largely benefits his generation at the expense of people like you? Yeah, no, it makes that right. 
there's there's no question about that. I mean, uh, and I think that's you know kind of weirdly reflected in this, like you know everything the, though. Everything they've done doesn't reflect. The, the, there was part parts of what he announced last night was the likes of you know increased student enrollment numbers that they've made more sure. spaces in college to make sure that people didn't get completely screwed over by points inflation for the last couple of years, for example. No, yeah. For sure. But the reality is, is that, uh, you know, Mick talks about the elephant in the room here. Um, and, you know, first of all, on the, of the list you called out, uh, that not most of those were not Fine Gael only generated. Um, I mean, claiming marriage equality is quite the uh, she's reaching your honour. But like uh, the, the reality is that, um, you know, if we are talking about the, the largest uh, and the most pressing crisis uh, of of the of certainly our generation around housing, uh, you know, so little movement has been made on this by mm. Fine Gael in any meaningful way. Uh, and Mixed right also pointing out the fact that this was called an emergency, and then we didn't really act on it. It's like re- the reality is that the largest proportion of the Fine Gael voter base are people who already own homes, and so they're not really concerned about the people uh, who are stuck uh, in advance of that, or people who are homeless, or people who are struggling uh, at the moment. At least that's the way it feels and and look at it's just it's so it's just gas when you look at all the coverage I mean so much of the coverage today that's supposed to supposed to be talking about the Fine Gael Ardesh is talking about Sinn Féin Mm. it's like one of those things like when you think if you think enough about something it'll become true and yeah, I don't know what the strategy is. Yeah. I don't know what the strategy here is. Um, you know, obviously, Vradker has a, a, like a master's degree in anti-Sinn Féinery at this point, and it it seems to be the only thing he thinks uh, is going to, uh, you know, really uh, be appreciated by the Fine Gael voter base. It's obviously a massive concern for them. But the more you talk about Mary Lou, uh, the more people like me are thinking yeah. about how she's talking about housing and he's not. Well, here we are furthering it now. So maybe let's talk then for a moment about what he said about Michal Martin because yeah. uh, that, that is pointed out Mick on page 8. It was very warm and fuzzy, wasn't it? Well, there you go. Um, it's on the front page, I think it's page 8, I think of something independent where he describes about Michal Martin is, is a decent man and um, I'll make this observation to him later but like it, it strikes me as what, uh, how far we've come in a weird way that like a Fine Gael leader will be standing at stage at a Fine Gael or a Desh giving a speech to the party faithful talking about how the Fianna Fáil Taoiseach was a decent skin. Absolutely. And not even that, even in terms of the, the personal relationship between two, the two of them prior to um, going into government together, it was testy even for opposition politicians and that sort of thing. But they seem to be getting on well. The reality is it's simply down to, and this feeds into his whole Sinn Féin spiel as well, the reality is the way it's being viewed whether or not this comes to pass, but currently the way it's being viewed is you have Fine Gael on one side, Sinn Féin on the other. Now, Fine Gael in particular want to perpetuate that. Mm. The, the, the big thing is who makes up the rest of the government because neither of those are going to have a majority government and that's where Fianna Fáil come into play. So, Unless so it's Sinn- the old two and a half party system where Fianna Fáil are the half party but still Exactly, the where it used to be the one party against the, yeah. the, the one and a half, the other side. But wh- where that really comes into play is um, if Sinn Féin... Do not, if Sinn Féin do not get to the point where they just need an extra, for example, maybe 10, 15 max seats mm. in order to reach a majority. Now, it's unlikely they'll get there. It's quite possible. Yeah. If they do, they do. But if the next all will probably be 170. So you're looking at then if they, you need a, to have 85 to have a majority. So you'd be talking about if Sinn Féin were to try and go 65 plus, I'd, yeah, I, I, 65 I'd plus. suggest. Otherwise, you, 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 no, for, with the greatest respect to people for profit in them, Personally, I don't believe they want to go into government so you can uh, you, you, you can eliminate them. Not only that, Sinn Féin will be going after their seats, mm. but then you're left with the sort of green stroke, labour stroke, social democrats and whether they'd have enough and whether they'd want to go in or whether... 
the big player in the whole thing is going to be Fianna Fáil or what's left of it and which which way they decide to jump effectively yeah. and that's what he, and that of course is at the heart of yes. what uh, Leo Varadkar is talking about, as he was when he suggested yeah. a, a voting pact well, two years out th- there well, a few weeks ago there we go it brings me to uh, page 6 of the Mail on Sunday where they're pointing out and by the way I should say that in, in trying to find page 6 of the Mail on Sunday I've stumbled across page 9 of the Mail on Sunday which does tell us very authoritatively that supply chain issues from the North Pole are resolved so there'll be no shortage of goodies for delivery by the big man that's not a budget metaphor by the way that's a Christmas reference that's five weeks away Holy uh, fuel display well there you go um, <laughs> page 6 uh, of the Mail on Sunday does say that Mial Martin is already playing for a vote pact with Fianna Fáil Sheena. yeah but wasn't that uh, uh, you know struck down then by Martin during the week I mean that, that they weren't yeah. interested in, in kind of putting together any kind of vote pact and, and I think then Farad Karat yesterday's Ardesh kind of moved away from even talking about that yeah. uh, I mean the, the reality here is that Martin is looking at the wind and the way it's blowing is towards Sinn Féin and the reality is is that while Fine Gael have hopped on the horse of uh, you know making anti-Sinn Féin their key message go uh, in the next uh, over the the last six months and indeed before that uh, Fianna Fáil are now slof- softly slowly moving in a different direction and I think it's uh, Pat Rabbit in the in the in the Sunday Business Post uh, has a piece uh, looking at you know what that might uh, what that might look like uh, mm. he, he's uh, highlighting a concern about Fianna Fáil going in with Sinn Féin uh, as well but I think what Martin is doing is trying to test the waters of the Fianna Fáil faithful around this it would yeah. have very similarly to Fine Gael, been a very strong feeling at local level uh, by Fianna Fáil that yeah. they could never possibly go in with Sinn Féin but we're seeing uh, until uh, the numbers require it yeah, and we're, but we're seeing a change in tone and that's mm. really really interesting um, one, one other quick yeah, element and a lot of polling has shown that the Sinn Féin vote is soft in other words a lot of it's there because of the actions of the government and it's anyone but the government kind of thing as opposed to specifically hard line yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it being you know a Sinn Féin vote and therefore the solution is very easy for the government that the moment do what is required and that will take some radical action do it and then people might see that you're capable of doing it don't know whether I'd see that coming now a uh, couple of texts uh, but people are very exercised about the Fidigal race this morning Simon and Meath says good grief will Varadkar panic like Enda Kenny and meet senior members of the British Tory party given his desperation attacking the left I presume that that isn't some sort of a Brexit hands across the water sort of a thing I think he means more about trying to marginalise some sort of imagined Corbynite figure somewhere in the Irish left uh, and Martin says good God looking back at the so-called founding fathers a trail of social destruction would be a fair description uh, says Martin to 53106 um, we mentioned uh, which way the wind is blowing there and if you'll pardon me a very clumsy segue uh, into um, events at COP27 which obviously emerged too late to be included in the papers mm. but news of this loss and damage fund being signed off um, Sheena there, there's a couple of references uh, almost on the expectation that it was going to happen in the papers anyway Yeah um, absolutely and, and, and you're dead right uh, the, the, the text uh, printed in today's papers are just that little bit uh, behind what actually then happened overnight but with the expectation, uh, you're right, that the loss and damage fund uh, would be passed. Uh, so what we're looking at here is that, uh, you know, Eamon Ryan, obviously, uh, from Ireland, was uh, appointed the uh, kind of chief negotiator from for the EU at mm. COP27, which was a big deal. And I I mean, I don't know, was it surprising? Um, but certainly, you know, he would, he would have been very much challenged uh, in what were very extreme circumstances, I think, in some of those bilateral meetings over the course of the last uh, two weeks, but particularly 
particularly in the last couple of days. Uh, what's interesting here is that uh, we're looking at with the loss and damage fund is looking at vulnerable countries that are particularly impacted. So you're talking about island nations as an example yeah. or indeed even like Pakistan who we saw were uh, very heavily impacted by mm. flooding and yeah. rains over the, the summer. The country was underwater, yeah. Yeah. Um, and looking at how you can mitigate and support uh, those uh, countries uh, with the impacts of climate change that are often and mostly created by large industrial nations. Uh, while that's welcome, and I think Eamon Ryan did uh, a significant job in kind of moving that towards a successful in the end conclusion as the sun came up this morning on COP27, the reality is is that this COP has fallen far short of actually doing anything to mitigate the issues of climate change. It hasn't actually, while we might have climate justice in some regards uh, looking at kind of supporting those countries who might need support we haven't done anything to change the direction of travel and so ultimately I would see this COP Mm. as largely a failure Mick largely a failure well, what has been a success in relation to climate change? I agree with Sheena. It is a failure. Um, the only thing you can say for it is it is better that something of this nature is happening because if it is not, further from the public consciousness slips the issue of climate change. I think that's the problem. I think it's the problem with business. I think it's also a problem with citizens. I think the what is required to be done, the willingness simply is not there to do it and irrespective of what targets are set that will continue to be the way we're all changing in small ways it's the big ways are the problem I mean what summed a lot of it up for me was Michal Martin's speech there when at, at the outset of it where he sounded said what we have to do and we must do this and that and Ireland's a laggard in terms of climate change and we mm. were not doing it in this country and we're preaching others to do it and again Sheena's point the, the poorest countries the ones that had least to do with mucking up this environment are the ones paying the highest price and, mm. and that injustice well, is the overweening yeah. thing in the whole thing. This is where the loss and damage idea kicks in because mm. fundamentally the, the, the principle is that well what right does the developed world have to say that the technology they use to develop can't be used by the developing world and, and why is it fair that we were able to use something which is so toxic to the planet and no one else can do it as well. Um, never let it be said that we don't follow the lead of our listeners uh, because Mike has texted to 53106. Good morning to you Mike. And he says, would you take a break from News Talk's constant Finnegale bashing? Unusual that News Talk may be accused of Finnegale bashing, but here we are. And at least mention the article in The Independent, I think he means the Mail on Sunday, concerning Russian interference in the upcoming Irish election. Your pro-Shinner editorial bias is really wearing thin now, <laughs> uh, says this man. He must be new to News Talk. Hi, um, we, we're a national station and we've existed for some time. Um, well, let's talk about the, then that uh, briefly. The front page story of the Irish Mail on Sunday. Governments, uh, ministers and government officials employing increased security measures amid fears of uh, Russian infiltration. Um, the piece does go on to explain on page seven that the uh, the prospect of some sort of Russian espionage did uh, fuel the decision to provide all cabinet ministers with armed protection and special transport. So this may be the idea that there may be some Russian operatives who might have some access to ministers that can be averted by having full-time guard of drivers. Uh, it also goes into some detail about how the 52 people that are included on this Russian travel ban list have now asked that they maybe be provided with some sort of higher level of um, mobile phone technology or some other uh, means by which they can tra- communicate more securely because they're worried, Mick, of Russian infiltration. Y- you sound unconvinced. All I can say, Gavin, is quote uh, uh, an, an august publication the Skibreen Eagle had a <laughs> famous editorial at the time of the Russian Revolution Moscow we're keeping an eye on you mm. 
Uh, one of those on the watch list, Fine Gael TD and former Minister Michael Ring says he is deeply concerned about the lack of security cover. He told the Mail on Sunday, I'm calling on the Taoiseach and the Taunashta to take it seriously and that our security has to be looked at now. We want advice from the government on how we're going to deal with this. Mail on Sunday previously reported that he was a member of the 2018 cabinet that had their phones taken off them before a meeting to discuss the then expanding Russian embassy. You think initially what harm, right? Because it's like, oh, look at, you know, uh, getting your name onto the list. In fact, it's a good list nearly to be on because at least it looks like you're kind of, uh, you know, anti-Russia or at least what they're doing in Ukraine. Um, But it is no small thing at the same time. It might not have any real world initial impact on our Oireachtas members. Uh, It might might feel certainly that it's just, you know, fodder for, for chatter like this. But the reality is, is that we have seen the impact of Russian intervention uh, both through social media and also in election uh, elections mm. across the world. So uh, I think we should at least it, it, it should give us pause for thought. Uh, I do think that there, you know, it's some some bit of dog whistling going on from Russia uh, because you know they, they didn't really do their research on who was even being added to the list. To, to be quite honest, they seem to have just banged a, a good few names on there to cause uh, to cause outrage. To, to look, look, I mean, Thomas Byrne during the week, you know, was speaking about this mm. uh, with re, with regard European to the, yeah, with with Minister Thomas Byrne with regard to the response Ireland might have to this. Um, so it, it, I suppose uh, and what he was saying was look at uh, you know I think it's a bit of a dog whistle I think they want us to be outraged they want us to react for instance throughout the ambassador or whatever and a lot of people felt strongly about this on social media uh, in agreement but I think what he was trying to say as well was uh, this is this is entirely thrown in to throw the seeds of discord and confusion uh, and uh, but at the same time we do need to take it seriously in that uh, sure it might not be uh, of any immediate impact and they don't none of these Oireachtas members intend on travelling to, the, mm. to Russia but at the same time we're there in the middle of a war with Ukraine and, and lots of other places doing some really really shady things and uh, we have seen the power of Russia in a number of other uh, in other, other, yeah. other platforms to, to change people's minds and influence the direction of travel for yeah, governments. To, to be fair, that Mail on Sunday article does make the very prescient point that Michael Ring was a member of the cabinet in 2018 when they were discussing the possible veto of Russia looking to expand its embassy in Rathgar and that they had their phones taken off them so that if there was the prospect of Russia having means to access the phones that they wouldn't have uh, some sort of listening device in the room. And it is also worth reminding people that whenever the European Council, the summit of European uh, heads of government, whenever they're discussing anything to do with sanctions or anything of the sort, they are also now expected to leave their phones outside the room. So it's not just a uniquely Irish thing that every European government has some concerns about it being done in some level. A um, couple more texts. Um, all the chat seems to be about Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil and how they'll fit in the future. Apart from COP, no mention of Eamon Ryan's future in government. I think we all know the answer to that one, says Peter and Thurlis. It's the Green Party uh, National Convention next weekend, so we'll hope to speak to Eamon Ryan and we'll ask him plenty about them then. And someone else says, has anyone really outlined why Sinn Féin would be so bad? Is it because they're socialist? Surely they can't be it alone. Are we not always going on about how good life is in the socialist Nordic countries? And why is socialism so reviled? Haven't we all benefited from living in a socialist country by and large? What uh, has socialism got to do with Sinn Féin? <laughs> there, there you have it. Uh, 53106 for your texts on, on that and much more. We're going to be talking about that housing underspend. Ono Brin is going to join us for a few minutes next. The front page of the Sunday, business, uh, Sunday Independent tells us today 
that nearly a third of the government's housing budget for the first nine months of this year was not spent. The government had planned to spend £1.475 billion on capital programmes by the end of September, but only £999 million was actually spent, an underspend of £476 million, 32% less than had been expected by the end of September. We're joined on the line by the Sinn Féin TD for Dublin Midwest and Party House spokesperson on housing, Owen O'Brien. Um, Owen, I thought this was relatively public domain already, that they, we published the fiscal monitor every month and it's already been showing that there's been this gap between what was expected and what's been actually spent for some time. Well, the first thing is, this is absolutely shocking. In the middle of one of the worst housing crises in modern history, uh, uh, the state is not spending its allocation on delivering social affordable homes. What also makes it worse is this is the third year in a row that the department is underspending. Uh, and I suppose the latest information that uh, Hugh O'Connell from the Irish Independent got by way of a cabinet memo is that the amount is increasing um, and if you want to know why homelessness is at record levels uh, and why house prices and rents are rising it's because the government isn't spending these, these hundreds of millions of euros on key social uh, and affordable housing targets uh, so you know the minister has to explain uh, not only why this is happening but why he isn't doing anything uh, uh, to try and address this year-on-year accumulating underspend. At this point, we're about 10,000 social housing, social homes less than we should have had because of the underspend in 2020, 2021, 2022. Uh, and likewise, uh, uh, there's strong speculation that we're not going to meet either the social housing or crucially the affordable rent and affordable purchase targets this okay. year. Well, what, whatever about the, those targets, though, um, this was raised in the Dole a week or two ago and there was some suggestions at the time about you know there being an underspend. And Dara O'Brien said... It isn't so much an underspend so much as this thing is kind of lumpy, that a lot of this stuff maybe might be spent already, but that the sort of the bookkeeping for it doesn't go through and towards the end of the year. So that he, as far as he's concerned, the money that was assigned is actually being deployed. Have you got anything to suggest that that's not the case? Absolutely. So uh, shortly after the budget for next year was announced, uh, we got documentation from the Department of Housing to show that there would be at a minimum a 240 million carryover of unspent housing capital this year into next year's budget. That's about the same as the year before. But also what this cabinet memo does is this sets out what they expected to have been claimed quarter on quarter versus what was actually claimed. Uh, so in fact, the, the figures, the 1.475 billion uh, uh, that should have been claimed by the end of quarter three and the 999 million that was claimed, that doesn't take into account the money that should also then be claimed by the end of the year. So what this memo is telling the government is the money they should have spent, they hadn't spent. And I, I actually think we're going to have a much larger underspend by the end of the year than the 240 million the government has already uh, admitted. Okay. And again, you have to ask yourself, I mean, at a time of rising prices, for example, how is it that the government is spending less? In fact, you would think they would be spending more, but also at a time of such enormous housing need. I mean, we've almost 11,000 adults and children in emergency accommodation. We have vacant homes all over the country. We have high quality modular uh, uh, manufacturers screaming for contracts to deliver good quality homes. And Darrell O'Brien is sitting uh, on hundreds of millions of euros and doing nothing. And there are things that well, we have been calling on the minister to do this year, last year and the year before to uh, address this problem. And unfortunately, they're falling on deaf ears. Well, well, you can't know for certain whether they're falling on deaf ears because it's very hard to judge whether they're being acted on or not until you actually see some fruition on the ground. But you mentioned that the idea that, well, if, if costs are going up, surely the government could be spending more. The, the memo, which is cited by Hugh O'Connell in the Sunday Independent today, also points out that there are massive supply chain shortages. So it's all well and good if you have the money, if you can buy the product. But if the product isn't available for you to buy, then of course you can't spend it. Well, and here's the irony, or, or here's the question, I suppose, is that 
the private sector isn't having uh, the same level of problems. So in the government's housing plan, there's a, a figure for the overall uh, number of new homes that is to be delivered this year by the private sector and the public sector. The private sector is actually meeting and probably going to slightly exceed what it was expected to deliver. Yes, they're paying more for it. Uh, so construction sector inflation is an issue. But supply chain uh, uh, issues uh, aren't slowing down private sector construction this year. So if the private sector uh, is meeting and exceeding what we expected of it this year, uh, why isn't the public sector? And the reason is, for example, there is far too much bureaucracy imposed both by the Department of Housing and the Department of Public Expenditure and Reform. Some of the schemes that have been recently designed, for example, the cost rental equity loan for affordable rental, is far too cumbersome and complex to work effectively. Uh, and we don't have enough focus by government either on vacancy, uh, derelict properties that are out there and quicker and cheaper to bring back into use, or high-grade modular building technologies. So, first of all, we know for a fact government isn't taking action on these things because we can see it quarter on quarter. Uh, and that's why there's so much anger. That's why there's a huge raise the roof housing protest in Dublin next Saturday, one o'clock in Parnell Square, led by the trade union movement of the homeless organisations. That's why Sinn Féin has our private members uh, motion this week on the housing crisis, because you have a minister who doesn't even think there's a housing emergency. You have a minister who is uh, increasingly complacent, and in my view, incompetent. If you cannot spend uh, uh, allocated capital on much needed social affordable homes at a time of an immense housing crisis, you really have to ask, what is the government doing at all? Okay, we leave there. Ono Brin, Sinn Féin, uh, spokesperson on housing. Thanks very much for joining us this lunchtime on the record. Um, lots of textures uh, coming in about this. Someone says, these figures don't surprise me. I've been working in a social housing scheme for the last two years. The houses are finished for the last six months, but our local councillors have delayed the handover of said houses, leaving all the contractors out of pocket, says this person. Housing crisis? Um, you might can, we, we can offer you confidentiality. You might get back in touch and just tell us exactly what, the, what council you might be working in or, or what area you're discussing there. Because the idea of houses being completed uh, but the councillors uh, delaying the handover of the houses uh, and then possibly stiffing the contractors that's quite significant so you might get back in touch and we can maybe have a poke around at that um, Sheena Cowell and Mick Clifford um, still with me in studio lots of other um, housing pieces uh, in the papers today um, including the um, quite alarming contention Sheena on page 20 of the Sunday Independent that the planning regulator appears to be not responsible for the delay in housing despite many house- in the housing construction side now they would say this but yeah. they would say that actually getting planning appeals through or getting planning permission in the first place is one of the biggest delays in the whole process yeah but it's it once again it just feels like where are we going to allocate the blame for the fact that we haven't actually delivered on the targets um in this case uh we were yeah uh, the the Sunday Independent is speaking to when Sunday Independent Wayne O'Connor is speaking to uh, Niall Cusson uh, of the planning regulator who's saying look at it's, it's not our fault. Don't, le- don't leave the, the blame at our door with regard to the fact that uh, we, the, the targets uh, aren't being met around uh, housing. For me, um, the whole thing smacks a little bit at the minute around not just about where do we lay the blame about the lack of delivery, uh, but it, what seems like a disconnect between central government policy and what is being what, what is being done or what is able to be done at local government level. Uh, so Owen mentioned there about the levels of bureaucracy uh, that can be tied up in the processes around not just planning, but also in relation to development and uh, the resourcing of these kind of projects. 
But certainly it seems to be an issue that not just in terms of the delivery and the resourcing of it, but in terms of even the figures at local development plan level don't seem to match what the government uh, are are promising at a national level. And not only that, that all the figures seem to differ. Uh, what we say we need uh, seems to differ depending on what briefing you're reading yeah, yeah. and whether you're reading the Housing is, for is All plan. Is it 25,000? Is it 33,000? Is it 40? Yeah. And that's concerning uh, on one level, but on the more immediate level, the issue that we are not really, uh, that for some reason there doesn't seem to be enough planning applications being uh, being delivered on. Mm. Uh, Niall Cusson is saying that's not our fault. Uh, you know, everybody's saying it's not our fault. Uh, obviously, there's a piece around the residential zoned land tax, which is an initiative being brought in. Of course, uh, Owen, who was just speaking, would be very critical of that particular tax, saying that's not really going to push things quick enough. Uh, and I don't think he's wrong. I think uh, the reality here is that while we're all debating the figures over how many we need, not enough uh, uh, sods are being turned at local level. And I think we need to investigate why that is happening. Is it because the building sector and the cost of materials is under so much pressure? Uh, as Owen also points out, uh, the, you know, should we not be spending more, not less at the minute mm. uh, due to the fact that yeah. there are rising construction costs? Uh. So this is all extremely worrying. And again, uh, mentioned again by Owen, uh, so many people on the li- on the on the register were looking for houses, but also a hell of a lot more not on that register who are living with uh, their parents uh, and 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 really struggling to uh, get by on, re- on on significant rents across across um, towns and cities in the yeah. country. Um, which, all of which I'll, I'll put to Leo Varadkar when he's with us just after twelve o'clock. Someone else also says, by the way, please tell Leo Varadkar that as a long-time Fine Gael voter and because of his failures in housing and his urban-centred leadership, that I couldn't vote for them last time, and I can't see any reason to vote for them now as long as his ethos and personality rules at this point in time there was no one for me to vote for next time um, says that listener uh, and also by the way someone else says there you go text our words of Sinn Féin socialism and triggered the veteran leftist ideologue I don't know if that's me or you Mick <laughs> uh, essentially, acu- essentially, essentially accuses Sinn Féin of not being left wing enough yeah. uh, relentless bias uh, um, just the thing in the housing I mean I, it brings to mind there, there I forget now the exact location but there was a piece recently where the Dublin City Councillors were briefed about a proposed public housing scheme and they were told there was only one or two tenders in for it. And that's really worrying mm. because one of the big things that you, you hear from people in the development business these days is funding is a big issue. OK, that's not an issue with public housing. The, you know, the funding is there from the government. It's under, it's not spent. It's there. Yeah. The bureaucracy, possibly that's an issue. But for whatever reason, it would seem that there are not the builders there to do the, what's, what's required. The other issue, t- to some extent, I'd say, say that, that that's the impression I get from some of these stories that come out about the lack of tenders. The other issue is the length of time it takes for public housing for full planning permission to be got. And there's absolutely no doubt that you'll find objections yeah. far more for public housing schemes than you will for private housing schemes. And that slows up the thing as well. So the, the whole thing is so intricate that there are various blockages at various levels. But whether or not there's enough political will being implemented Mm. to get over them, that's back to the same old story. Uh, I I have to go through an ad break, but I just want to mention two pieces that are on page seven of the Business Post. Firstly, um, advertisements and new developments which were intended for the long-term rental sector are being advertised as short-term lets at rates of more than double the regular rent, according to an analysis by the Business Post. Uh, Westwood Square and Hornbank, two Dublin re- uh, 
rental developments are being advertised on Airbnb for 173 and 221 euro per night, which would equate to 5,300 or 6,800 a month in rent uh, versus long-term tenants that are paying somewhere between uh, 1,950 and 3,000 a month in rent, effectively doubling the money by having it out as as short-term rent, which was not what they were built to do. Um, And also then elsewhere, just beside that, and this is maybe illustrative of how everyone wants housing, but maybe everyone wants different moulds of housing. A residents association has complained that an affordable housing body is locking out individual prime, uh, private home buyers by buying an entire housing estate. Respond, a housing association received state funding to purchase all 69 homes in the Sarsfield Heights estate, which is currently under construction in Wilton in Cork City. Um, Dara O'Brien, the Minister for Housing, visited the site and he's hailed it as an example of publicly funded homes that will be delivered to tackle the housing crisis. But a local residents association has complained that people in the area had been hoping to buy the homes themselves before Respond set in. The Eagle Valley Association told the Business Post that Respond's purchase of the entire estate was locking out first-time buyers, such as long-term renters, with families growing up in the area. Which seems to me like the perfect illustration of the difficulties we have, because everyone wants the housing, but everyone wants to have some claim in the housing, or everyone wants the housing to be deployed to certain categories in society. Sure, but that also seems like a communication issue with the local community. I mean, the the reality there is that if there was an intention to have that as social or affordable social housing uh, and that the intention by government uh, or the local county council was that Respond would take over, Respond or another would take over those 69 houses, uh, that should have been very clear to the local community before Respond went and did that and and it's been now made public. So if that is the case, it's very concerning at a local level that that wasn't communicated. Uh, But you're, you're not wrong, Gavin, of course, uh, there's always going to be not just this nimbyism idea that everyone's uh, objecting to everything, but also that there are so many different types of, of housing developments that are needed mm. and, and, and so many different types of homes and so many different types of properties. Uh, but as part of that process, and that's why we elect county councillors, is so that the local community are very part of that. That's why we sign off on development plans so that we know uh, the process uh, by which uh, plans like this are enacted and, wh- and who's getting what. Mm. So I'm concerned, obviously, that that local community feel the need to be objecting or, or be upset about this now. Uh, and we, we, I suppose it sh- surely needs to be looked into why they weren't aware that that was going to be social housing yeah. in advance. Uh, lots more housing stuff in the papers, but we don't have time to go through any more of it now. But after the break, we're going to be talking about the extensive coverage today, the life and the legacy of Vicky Phelan. Don't go away. Um, could Mick please expand uh, Mick's head jumping with alertness there could Mick please expand as to why people object to public housing estates being built near them anti-social behaviour drug use slaughtering by gangs of young people lack of care and attention to properties or maybe that's not left wing enough thinking to mention these reasons so no, someone who again who maybe uh, no they, they, they do and this is not me I I'm t- I'm spoke to council officials who tell me the very first thing that happens once they propose public housing in a lot of areas is that there are a raft of objections. Sometimes these objections may be reasonable on the basis of planning, other times not so. And I believe a huge amount of it is down to perceptions. They're down to perceptions like of the failures classism. of social housing in the past. Mm. They're down to perceptions. They're down to base snobbery in some instances. Not all. But and I mean, it, it, it's not just confined to public housing. People will object to private housing as well, because if they fear it's going to impact, let's for argument, say, 5%, 10% of their lifestyle, then why should they? That that was the attitude among some people. But there's no doubt far more in terms of public housing. Yes, there are objections. And I think it's down to perceptions rather than any reality. If If public housing is built properly, as it tends to be these days, with all the attendant facilities and that kind of thing, then, you know, mm. there's no reason to believe that it wouldn't be a success. And it 
it has been a success in most places. Yeah. Um, I do want to get to the, the topic that I said we would discuss in this part, which is the, the death and the legacy of Vicky Phelan. And there is, of course, understandably, an awful lot written across today's papers. And a lot of it, uh, and I hope I'm not being unkind or, or mischaracterising it here, but a lot of it with the general thrust of... Uh, you know what she achieved what she hoped to achieve uh, how stoic she was in pursuing her campaign when she had so many other things on her plate and ultimately the action that she wanted uh, rather than the praise that she has received nonetheless anyway Um, and there's a bit of me and I I want to word this very carefully because I want to to not sound insensitive as I say it but there's a bit of me Sheena I'll start with you that wonders exactly what she did manage to achieve and, and what was actually rebuffed because if you look at what she did objectively want. Well, the first thing she wanted was for no one else to have to go to court the same way that she did. And that obviously didn't happen because we know the names of others who had to. We know that only 25 cases were brought to the tribunal before its closing date uh, in July of this year. By comparison, I think one laboratory alone was being sued 35 times in the high court last year alone. So that didn't materialise the way she wanted. And then as regards, as we were discussing during the ad break, open disclosure, the idea that it would be now legally mandatory to tell someone if there had been some error or oversight in their care, which four years on still has not been legislated for. I know. And if those were the two primary goals, then in truth, and and I don't at all mean this to to disregard what the woman spent her, her final years trying to achieve, but what did she actually manage to successfully change? And what did the system allow to change or how much was resisted? I think she very likely passed away earlier this week, still uh, remaining extremely frustrated with the lack of progress uh, around this issue. Um, I think she, uh, it's very, very clear, um, you know, in any article that you read, uh, when you kind of push past all the praise, uh, I suppose that, uh, and the talk about, you know, how heartbreaking it was, uh, that there is an onus upon us to talk about, you know, the veil of secrecy uh, that she managed to cut through, um, you know, when she cast off the gag order. Uh, with regard to her own case and talk publicly about what had happened to her, uh, the lack of clear information, uh, the lack of disclosure around her health records, the fact that she had to pursue that in the courts. So what she achieved was not just giving a platform to hundreds of women who had either gone before her or would come very sadly after her with misdiagnosis or uh, a lack of information that contributed uh, to a healthcare plan mm. uh, that uh, would ultimately in some way fail or not provide uh, the length of time uh, uh, of life left that they should have had for those women. Uh, I think that is one of the key things that she did. But actually... I think that what she did does not stop with her passing. I think that her legacy will build far beyond uh, what went on in the last number of years uh, and her dying at 48. It will continue into... As I said, as I say, the onus on us to talk about what Kean O'Carroll, her solicitor, talks about very eloquently in the Sunday Independent uh, on uh, page 10 mm. with regard to, I suppose, a, a list and a short one because he didn't have the space. I mean, I think he could fill the paper uh, with the bucket list. But mm. number one, looking at the need to be honest, the need to be able to disclose when something hasn't been caught, the fact that when um, medical professionals do find out 
that there was either an error or a miscalculation. No one believes, no, everyone understands that cervical check uh, as a process, as a laboratory process is not perfect. It doesn't catch everything. There will be mistakes made. Med- uh, medical science is not perfect in that regard. But that when there is an imperfection, when there is an error, that you have the right to know and you shouldn't have to go to the court to find that out. That's number one. Number two, he talks about, Kean talks about bringing screening home. The fact that we outsourced as a, as a cheap measure uh, are a, a number of laboratories who were checking up on cervical uh, screening. And the fact that that still exists today, Gavin, mm, like you're yeah. talking about there's supposed the to be a, a national laboratory it, in the coom, which is still yet to commence. And it hasn't, and job. it hasn't started. Um, talking about the the cervical check audit as well. Again, uh, as Kean mentions in the piece, it was a legacy issue for Vicky uh, that it needs to be restarted. Um, the fact that you know there was one thousand five hundred women who have been diagnosed with cervical cancer since have all, they and they have all been kept in the dark about whether their previous smear history was also negligently misread like Vicky's. And he says that this is a deliberate and calculated secrecy, a conscious denial of women's right to know the truth about her own medical history. And then finally, he talks about the Civil Liability Act, which is really devastating to read about. And I wasn't aware of it, which was basically where... MedLab, uh, uh, MedLab, which is one of the, the laboratories that was found to have negligently misread uh, Ruth Morrissey's smears, yeah. uh, successfully argued in the Supreme Court uh, that the that the future loss um, the, in respect of your children could only arise on your actual death. So, for instance, if um, you didn't pass uh, away, then the money that you were arguing for in court, uh, you know, to, to fund your, your, your children's future lives uh, and education, all that kind of stuff, uh, you'd have to make a, a devastating decision about whether you're going to take money uh, on the basis of your own life or w- whether it was for your, your wow. future children's lives. That's the kind of stuff that ultimately that hasn't been resolved. Um, and, and as you just said there at the top, four years later, we haven't enacted, uh, you know, what Stephen Donnelly is now talking about, which is the the, the ability for uh, people to be able to request uh, information about their medical histories. Yeah. Um, and I think that is devastating. But I think a, a legacy for Vicky is about the ongoing work, not just what happened up until she passed away this mm. week. And I think... You know, Ailish O'Hanlon has an article as well talking about the anger that she feels, the anger that she feels women feel. Um, I certainly feel it. A, a fire has been lit under a lot of people again this week uh, about what's going on and what has mm. continued to go on here for women, including Lens- Lindsay Bennett, of course, from Longford, of course. who passed away in the last few weeks as well. Um, Mick, we only have about 60 seconds left, but I do want to touch on uh, some new reporting for me for more on page three of the Sunday Times, uh, where it's emerged that some victims of the cervical check scandal are having expenses relating to their treatment rejected by the HSE. For example, one woman who uh, needed to have hotel stays, travel and childcare while she was undergoing surgery been told that she had left it too late to claim the money back still doesn't seem like we have a very generous attitude to these people no and uh, you're back again to bureaucracy and and that kind of thing where, where they just don't take account of human beings I mean I think all of this very a huge amount of this would not be, have the, the the oxygen of publicity if it were not for Vicky Phelan. I've come across just in the course of work, mm. Gavin, very, usually you're going to have these gagging orders, especially when it's a body of the state, the Gardaí, the HSE, and any major body of state, this gagging order so that nothing's going to come out that will reflect on anyone. The fact that she insisted not to take that, that is highly unusual. Mm. And what she did thereafter was effectively present herself as an example of somebody who was 
utterly failed by the yeah. system to a devastating effect and I think that of itself that that, that leadership that example was a huge yeah. thing okay. in, in terms of advancing the, the whole issue right. of women's health uh, certainly an absolute legacy that she has left the one thing she was able to achieve is to, to blow the lid on the whole thing uh, we will leave it there Mick Clifford special correspondent with the Irish Examiner and Sheena Cahill who got a new job last week that we didn't know about now account director with DHR Communications and also director of the Irish Family Planning Association thank you both very much On the record with Gavin Riley, Sunday morning at 11. Brought to you by PwC. Great minds think unalike. Different skill sets, diverse opinions, it all adds up to the new equation. On News Talk.